Really good to see everyone on the first uh, Sunday of the summer, as my voice booms. Um, yeah, really glad to be here this morning. We've been, we've been, um, I've been so proud of our church, how we've been really working to understand and have a deeper faith of what it means to trust and follow the Holy Spirit. Um, if you're new with us and you're like, oh, what's this been about? You're more welcome to check our website. We have uh, the teachings from the last uh, month and a half have all been around uh, the topic of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm excited today to kind of close out this conversation um, publicly, but knowing that this conversation needs to continue within the life of the church. Um, so I, I have a, any art museum fans, is anyone, anyone member, any art museum members here in this, any fans, any people that like go down and like you just are the armor, like my son is the armor guy, he goes right in the armor room, we'll spend the whole day there. Um, but uh, a few years ago I was at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and I walked in this kind of strange room, there was this really interesting picture um, that, is, uh, that, that I noticed sort of walking in, and it's sort of this really weird abstract room with a bunch of different like uh, art as sculpture, but art also as different pieces. And this is this ginormous piece of glass. It probably stands about this tall. And I remember kind of looking at it, and um, for those of you that have ever been to art museums and you walk by pieces where you're like, huh? And other people are standing there like, oh, brilliant. This is one of those pieces. I wasn't sure if I was struck by its brilliance or by the what the heck am I looking at at the moment. Um, but if you can show uh, uh, the next picture uh, that we have of this. Um, what's so brilliant about this picture, this, is, this was made uh, by a guy by the name of Marcel Duchamp. And uh, if you ever want to nerd out with someone or get weird, uh, talk with me and Dennis because this guy has been really interesting. Uh, he, he did a lot of artwork in the 20s and 30s, and then he just left it all and played chess for a bunch of years, and he came back. He's just really cool. Um, but what's so interesting um, is he, he began this work in the 20s, and eight years into it, go back to the other one, sorry, eight years into it, um, he came up with this, and it's sort of this really strange glass piece. And it was on display up in Brooklyn, and they were, uh, it was bought by someone in Philadelphia, and they said, hey, we're going to you know, ship it down. We want to set it up in, in the Museum of Art in Philly. And so they ship the piece down, and uh, the guys are unloading it off of the truck, and they drop it. Um, and they call Marcel, you know, like, I, I would just love to be a fly on the wall of that conversation, like being like, uh, you know, an 18-year-old kid with like a summer intern job, like, I'm going to die. Like, I'm sure I'm fired. This is awful. Well, you call him. You broke it. You know, uh, Marcel, uh, I, uh, can you come down? We have something we need to show you. So anyways, uh, little side note. He worked eight years on this and then just stopped. He was like, so it was his first unfinished, finished piece. He's like, I don't think I can do anything else to it, blah, blah, blah. It's done, um, which I guess is something artists can do, which I really like. So he comes down, and they're just ready, like he's going to lose it. And he shows up, and he looks at it, and show that next picture. And he sees all the broken pieces of glass, and he stops, and he pauses, and he says, it's finished. And so then he kind of like pieced back a few things that fell off, and he just put it there. And this, one, one of the things that's interesting, if you've, has anyone ever seen this, this piece in the Philadelphia Muse Museum of Art? What's fascinating is it is, uh, we, we actually talked to a guy who was there um, who kind of gave us some story. If you see the light behind it, this is the only 
bottom level place where they've busted a hole through the museum to put a window in because this is a piece of art that he says we need to look at the world through. And so this story, just understanding the idea of something damaged, something being cracked and broken, actually being a finished piece, the gospel is like all over the story. You know, that that time in our life when we recognize that we're so broken and incomplete, but yet God sees up and says, oh, I'm at work. It's beautiful. It's also the story of, of, the, of the church. This is the story of a bunch of broken things coming together and making this beautiful picture that the creator looks at and says it's finished when other people kind of walk around and go, huh. But the greatness of this story, of this glass, that what others call broken, the artist calls good. I think this is the story of the spirit, working in the ways that we least expect it, that the Spirit surprises us by the mess. He surprises us by the ways that He works in the midst of the broken things that seem to be around us. And that this story of this broken piece reminds me of a story within Scripture. And so I want to read a passage of Scripture, and as, as we listen, uh, I want us to, to, to listen from a perspective of trying to put ourselves in the story. Not just hear the, the facts and the details, but actually to understand, like, what am I feeling? What am I smelling? What am I hearing? What am I touching? Like, what is happening? Uh, I, I think this is one of, the Bible is just a scandalous book that is dangerous to read. Because if we actually begin to do the things and, and embody what it calls and believe in this wild God who shows up in these unprecedented ways to rescue and save a broken humanity, it should reorient how we look at everything else in life. It should be like a piece of glass that we look at the entire world through. But as, we, as I read this, I want you to just keep this kind of playing in the background. Um, A few years earlier, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he looks at his disciples and he says this. He says, hey, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you to be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the world. So almost think of like concentric circles getting a little bit bigger each time. So just keep that kind of rolling around in the back of our heads as we listen to this. And for those of you that want to read along, I'm in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And so in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he he sent them to Joppa. 
About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice of the Lord said to him a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And this happened three times, and the, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men from, by Cornelius, sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house, and they were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit had said to him, Look, three men are now searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason of your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave, gave them lodging. And the next day they got up and went with them. And some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. And so the story is really fascinating because there's a ton of things happening that are really important for us to unpack. And so when we first meet this Cornelius guy, we learn a few things about him. We understand that he is, uh, he's an army man. He's one of these people who's a leader of, of armies. He's a pretty upright guy. And we're not really sure what to do with this. If we are going to put ourselves in the context of the first hearers of the story, whenever we hear Greeks or Rome, Roman soldiers, we think not good people, not friends, uh, stranger danger. And so what happens is he is this guy who somehow has been upright in what he has done. And what we see in this story is that God is already at work here. There's this beautiful term uh, that my Wesleyan friends use called provenient grace, which means grace that goes before. And so God is already wooing and stirring Cornelius and his household because the way that they orient their life is just different. But what we also see is that even just these good works and this prayer and this household, it's not, it's not enough. It's not this whole just be a good person kind of salvation story. But it's saying, you know, Jesus, like good works is great and the alms and taking care of the poor, these are all important, but Cornelius, there's something bigger. There's a relationship that is involved with God. And so good works without Jesus is kind of just good works. We need them, and I love that that happens and we need to continue it, but God has a bigger story at play. He doesn't leave us like this, but he comes to those who are seeking because he's a relational God. He's not a God who stays up in the heavens somewhere far away, but he's one that comes to us. That's the story of Jesus. That's the story of God sending his son to earth to embody a particular 
person in a particular place, in a particular space that God would put on flesh and bones and come to us. That's a scandalous story of God. That's the scandalous story of grace. And so as we kind of continue to think through the story, there's a, any of you ever heard the term Easter eggs? Um, anyone, I mean, not like actual Easter eggs, but people watch movies and like they, they hear about Easter eggs. My, my kids do this. My daughter does this a lot. Um, she'll watch a movie and then she'll get on YouTube and find YouTube videos that tell you about all the Easter eggs, which basically are these references to other movies within the movie. You guys following me? No, yeah. If you're not a movie nerd, you wouldn't understand. <clears throat> but there's so many of these Easter eggs in this story. So how many of you have ever heard the word Joppa before? Not Java, but Joppa. Anyone ever hear the word Joppa in Scripture? It's, it's a word, yeah. What, 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 what do you know about Joppa? Anybody? It's by the sea. Yeah, there we go. It's by the sea. What's that? Cross from Tarsus. Very good, yeah. There was an Old Testament prophet who, who spent time in Joppa. Does anyone know which Old Testament prophet that was? Jonah. Okay, so understand this. The second Joppa is mentioned within this story, it's like a huge Easter egg. People are like, wait a minute, Joppa. What? Okay, that's where Jonah, that's where Jonah ran in order to flee from this calling that God had. So that's one of these things, right? And we'll get to Joppa in a second. Also, Simon the Tanner and Simon you know, called Peter. One of the things that's so interesting about Simon, and you find it in Matthew 16, does anyone know who Simon's, like what Simon's name is or who his dad's name was? Jonah, Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah. So there's all these like little light bulbs going off in early hearers' heads. And so Simon son of Jonah is standing at Simon the Tanner's house. Now, if we understand anything about Jewish culture, Jewish history, uh, tanners are unclean because they're dealing with dead animals all the time, okay? So the clean Simon, is son of Jonah, is staying with unclean Simon Tanner. And we'll get into that in just a second, too. In Joppa. And so for ancient hearers, bells and whistles are like going off. For most of us, we're like uh, someplace called Joppa. I don't know. But what happens is Joppa, understanding that that's where Jonah goes to flee from God. But maybe actually it's a change of the story of Joppa. And maybe this is the change of the story of Jonah. Because Jonah was called to go to the worst people around, the worst people imaginable. He was called to go to the Ninevites. And so for some reason, this idea of Peter being in Joppa is this expression of God launches these radical, outrageous missions of grace from Joppa. Joppa is a place where God begins to do brand new things. And I love what Peter does. Peter's hungry. Some people think maybe he was fasting. Um, I've read a lot of really cool old uh, church fathers on this, and it's been really interesting. But Peter's hungry, and he goes to the upper roof. He goes to an upper room. Does that throw an Easter egg anywhere for us, for someone to ascend into an upper space? About 10 chapters before, the disciples go into an upper room to wait for the Spirit to come. And so Peter is hungry, he's on this roof, and he begins to pray, and then he goes into a trance. Um, or some people say uh, he, he became like he was drunk. Was there any other places where people were accused of being drunk in upper rooms in the book of Acts? Maybe. I don't know. But what's so interesting is he has this beautiful, weird 
strange vision. Has anyone ever had a vision like this before? Um, and, I, and it's amazing because what happens is this sheet with these four corners and all these different animals comes down, and Peter sees it, and this is what's amazing. He's offended by it. Like, God is not afraid to offend us. That kind of worries me and bothers me, but it also brings him a lot of hope. Um, Augustine, the church father, said this, and this is fascinating. He said, the sheets with the four corners is this idea of the whole earth from its four corners being called to faith and salvation. And then he gets really weird with his multiplication, which is really interesting. He said, the four corners times the three times that is dropped down equals 12, which is the apostolic number, which is the symbol of salvation to the whole world. And I love how some of our early church fathers think. It's brilliant. St. Bede said this. He said that the animals are the nations that are unclean, but they're made clean by the threefold lowering of the mysterious trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For any of you who have ever been part of an older traditional baptism, how many times are they sprinkled or dunked in the water? Three. And so this vision is this beautiful statement that God's promise all the way back in the beginning of Scripture that I will bless you and that your offspring will be a blessing to the rest of the world. That the idea of God's love and rescue plan was not just for one person, but it was for the world. That this is the moment when it comes into reality. That this idea of what is broken, what is far, is now close. What is unclean is now being made clean. And this idea of it all being clean now is offensive to Peter. It is frustrating to Peter. The fact that the borders to the kingdom of heaven are wide open and that some don't like this. In fact, so much so that in Acts chapter 15, Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, had to come back and have a meeting to make sure we are letting these weird people into the church in the right way. And this is a rule uh, that I've adopted for years of my life. Um, you're really not worth your salt till they've had to make a rule about you or had to have a meeting about you. And so it's beautiful because the church has to respond because when all these weird, unclean people start showing up, they don't know what to do because it's not just the next door neighbor, but it's cultural clashes. It's all this shift and change. And the fact that the Spirit is blowing the doors off of what they thought was just going to be a particular culture and people, and now all of a sudden it has opened up that these borders have been busted down. Paul nerds out about this in the book of Ephesians when he starts to talk about the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed, and now God's grace and presence is available to all. My friends, this is the story of Pentecost 2.0. That Jesus calls his disciples to the ends of the earth, and up until this point, they've kind of stalled They've hit Jerusalem, they're excited. They've hit Judea, they're excited. They've hit Samaria. Uh, and then this one guy, Philip, has this weird thing with this Ethiopian guy, and they just kind of try to, it's just sort of mentioned, but they've just decided we're not, they have not taken it to the four corners of the earth. And so by the Spirit shows up and creates this huge mess. And he opens up the doors and says, it's not just for the Jews, but it's beyond this nationalistic worldview. 
and it's to the world and even to our enemies. And we find out later in this chapter that the Holy Spirit does the exact same thing with Cornelius and his household as he did with the 12 disciples and their friends waiting in the upper room, that he sends his spirit and the same thing happens. And so the Holy Spirit, what we hear in this is the Holy Spirit is always empowering the church to move outward. That the church was never meant to be a building with four walls, but it was always meant to be a moving, living, breathing people who have been set ablaze by the good news that God's love and grace is a gift to the world. And the idea that the Spirit is always up to something new. And the hilarity of the story is that God invites us in on this beautiful mission to see the world reclaimed, renewed, recycled in the image and the love of Christ. And so that's the story of the early church. The early church would, would, would rise up in communities and all of a sudden poor people would not be poor anymore and people who were hurting would be taken care of and widows would be loved and orphans would be gathered in and taken care of. Some of the early historians of that time talked about these radical communities that eat babies. They are talking about Christians. They didn't really understand communion. But that when these communities showed up, it's like the needs of the community just started to be met because it was this radical invasion of God's kingdom and that this love was not just hoarded, but it was spread among the neighborhoods and the towns in which it showed up. Because from the beginning of the story of Scripture, God had a bigger idea of family in mind than what we originally intended and what we originally thought. And so the story has got me thinking about what it means to be a community empowered by the Spirit, to be missionaries cleverly disguised as co-workers, moms, dads, people who work in the healthcare industry, as neighbors, as friends, as teammates. But what does it mean to be people who allow themselves to be surprised by the work and the mischief of the Holy Spirit? A dear friend of mine came to visit a few weeks ago uh, from Kansas, and he's been charged uh, by some of his friends to spend some time sort of lurking around, that's the word he used, not mine, but lurking around churches that are trying to do new things to sense the Spirit pushing them out. And he shared with me this beautiful story of a church in Germany that they're building, uh, what they've done is they've, they've collected all this money and they have now opened up five or six hair salons and nail salons in the red light districts of Germany. And what they've recognized is now they have this time with these women who the world has kind of cast out, who the church has, has kind of deemed unclean as an opportunity and a space for them to begin to engage them with the love of Jesus. And so that has got me thinking about how radical this story actually is. I wonder what it was like for Peter when he was walking with Cornelius with his, with his lieutenant guy and these other two dudes, I wonder what thoughts are running through his head. Could it have been, man, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. 
Uh, could it be, I'm sure there was a lot of excitement. I'm sure there was a lot of fear. I wonder if there was a lot of doubt that he was dealing with. But I also wonder if there was this incredible sense of urgency because God was doing something new. And so what would our community, what would Renew look like if the Cornelius story happened today? Who would our Cornelius be? Who would we be called to? I believe that our attention to justice would really begin to rise because we would not just see people as issues, but we would see people as folks who've been created in the image of God just like us. I believe that this church would be blamed for getting into all kinds of kingdom mischief. I would hope we would have some kind of a rap sheet within the court system because we've been doing all these things to help people and to love people and to proclaim Jesus as Lord in the communities around us. I think this place would be a lot messier. I think it would probably look like, I don't know if you guys, some of you were still out there talking before, but there was like a gang of children running around being chased by another child who was dressed in a dog costume. But I think that's what it would potentially look like. By the way, the dog costume is really awesome. <laughs> But the idea of, of this being a messy place. And my friends, from the very beginning of, of being a pastor all these years ago and, and walking in this, the calling that God has placed on my life, the church should, have, should always be the space where people who ask questions feel comfortable, where people who need to find the love of Christ are welcomed, for people who are hungry to enter in. For people like Cornelius who maybe just be thinking about these things and wondering what it is to live a good life and wondering what it means to follow Jesus. But the church needs to, we need to be reminded that the borders have been shut down in the kingdom of God and that our job is to go outside. The spirit who brings mess, that we would be open to this really uncomfortable statement and that's that we would be open to the fact that sometimes the Spirit is going to make us really uncomfortable. But it also is understanding that our goal is to plant seeds and to trust the Spirit will do His work of calling and convicting and bringing people into the love of Christ and into the family. Uh, Tim and Cindy have, have taught me, I'm a really bad speller, um, but I actually know that there were spellers than I because they told me that faith is spelled R-I-S-K, and I know that there's an F in faith. But the idea of faith being about taking a risk, what would it look like for us to be a community that takes risks? I think it also means that when the Spirit shows up and He's messy, for us it's a calling to allow people space and time to belong in community before they fully believe what it is that they understand to be true about who God is. The mess of the Spirit calls us to faithfully walk with people through thick and thin. And that bears witness to what our gracious God does in our lives every single day. And so I'm really encouraged because these are not just ideas that our church is sitting here thinking, I've never heard this before. But the fact that these are already happening... Um, I just, we need to give like a big hooray, yay God, like Alpha finished, uh, they went through their first thing and they had a chance to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with a bunch of people 
And so that is a kingdom risk, an opportunity to, to introduce folks to the love of Jesus through conversations, through opportunities, through meals. What I love is it wasn't even really about all the, you know, just here's all the stuff we're going to get through. It's recognizing that people needed to build relationships with others in order to meet Jesus. And so Kent and Cindy and the other Alpha folks, thank you for taking a risk and sharing the love of Christ with people. I love that we see this at uh, community dinner. If any of you have ever been to community dinner, it's this amazing space where there are so many different folks who are sitting in that room sharing meals together, laughing together, sharing stories together, and somehow Jesus is present. And I love the way Joel introduces it every time. He says, uh, hey, we're here because we love this community and we just want to have a space where we can see new community form. And uh, we're all followers of Jesus. And so Jesus plays a really important part for this. And guess what? Nobody's ever left. In fact, more people keep coming. And so what's brilliant is that this group of people that said, how do we reach our community and, and recognizing the power of, ga of gathering around a table seems to break down walls. And it's been amazing to watch the way these community dinners have been shaping people's lives. One of my favorite stories in the last few months um, was uh, just sort of a, a very short snippet that I sent an email out for follow-up. But Michael Smith shared this beautiful story about um, one of the places where he works, one of the things that he's passionate about. He had a chance to just share the love of Jesus with this woman who's from a Buddhist tradition who was just going through a difficult time. Like, I love that it's not this, like, wild, crazy thing, but it's just being who you are. And then when the opportunity arises, we sort of step into it with grace and care. And so as a community since the beginning, since I've been here, we've heard a lot. And we used to talk a ton about this idea as a community. We want to be known as missionaries cleverly disguised as fill-in-the-blank. So some of the things that I've learned about spending time with missionaries are there are certain commitments that missionaries need to take on. And one of the first ones, I want to make sure that we hear this in a way that is not condemning, but in a way that is actually permission. Uh, if, if we look at our schedule throughout the week and we see that 90 to 100% of our time is spent with other Christians, we're kind of missing the point of what it means to be a missionary cleverly disguised as. Now, what I'm not saying is don't spend time with Christians. What I am saying is if you can think in your brain, I don't really know when the last time I had a conversation with someone who's far from Jesus, it's probably important for us to begin to think, even just to begin to pray, to use that as a beautiful opportunity to say, like, Lord, who's someone I can just build a relationship with? Who's someone that I can begin to share Christ with? Who's someone that I can begin to just see your work in an amazing way and to see them as someone who's built in the image of God. Uh, one of the things that's always interesting is whenever you go to pastor's conferences, which I'm sure not many of you have been to, um, they're really fun. They actually are. I really enjoy them. But what's super cool and really damning at the same time is the fact that most pastors have recognized that they never spend time outside of the walls of their church. And the fact that we don't have walls in this church makes it a little bit easier and so I'm really blessed and fortunate that that's kind of baked into our DNA that we would be a people that are constantly looking outside of the four walls of our church. 
So uh, some of the commitments that we need, we need to be people that are willing to spend time with folks who are not yet followers of Jesus. And my friends, this is really difficult because that includes people that make us uncomfortably, uncomfortable politically, orientation, and lifestyle. It also may bring us to people that we're just comfortable with, neighbors and friends and coworkers and people that we really get along with. Missionaries commit to building bridges and not walls. One of the things that I really appreciated about listening to Pastor Richard from Uganda um, a few weeks ago at the Bryce's was, was this amazing story uh, about, he, he mentioned in, in Uganda they have the most amount of refugees in any other place in the world. It's just like, it's, it, there's a ton of refugees in Uganda. And uh, I, I don't know if any of you have ever like, heard the news recently, but there's a lot of ch- conversation around refugees. And it's really interesting because as I'm hearing all that, I'm listening to this guy talk. And it was brilliant what he said. He said, it's amazing. God is so good. He sends all these refugees to our country when they have nothing. So we have a chance to tell them about Jesus and to be hands and feet of Jesus to them. There's a spirit orientation that he seems to, that he seems to embody that was so encouraging to me. That he and his fellow believers in Uganda, they see that as an obligation that they have, as an opportunity that they have to love people well. We see that with Pastor Brito and the way that he looks at these radical Hindus that have beat and killed some of his pastor friends. Their prayer and their calling is still to love them well, to see them come to know the saving grace of Jesus. Another thing that missionaries are committed to is they hold the newspaper in one hand and the scripture in other to steal from Karl Barth. They, they, we need to be people that are understanding what other folks are saying, what we're thinking about in the culture at large, in the neighborhood at large. And for us, we need to figure out ways Jesus' stories relate to what's happening. Another thing that missionaries commit to is praying for God's work to happen, praying to be available, praying for our hearts to be broken, uh, prayer walking. One of the things that, that I've noticed, Mary and I went on a prayer walk a few weeks ago in Lansdale, and I actually found the trick to prayer walking in Lansdale. Don't walk down the main street. Walk down the alleyways. We see so much more about a person when we walk behind their house than we do in front of their house. And like one of the big spiritual issues within, I think, our community particularly is we want to hide all the other stuff in the fenced-in area behind our house. And so this is an opportunity for us to begin to recognize what's happening. Now, granted, my yard can be overrun at times, so you can judge me too. It's not a place to, to, to pronounce judgment, but it is a place that I think the Spirit is at work in the alleyways more than in the front yard. And I think lastly, and this is something we talk about, but to be a community that's willing to take risks Missionaries are willing to take risks. Um, Kent Gerhardt preached one of the most shaping sermons I've ever heard on evangelism a few years ago. And he said this, uh, and I'm going to quote, quote him terribly, but he said, uh, God is always at work, but the question is, are we willing to be available? And so if we're willing to be available, I believe that God will use our willingness in the time that we have to see an amazing work of the Spirit happen among us and around us. And I think one of the most important ways that we may have neglected in the last few years as a community, one of the spaces, is our house churches. I mean, our house churches 
what would it look like if we began to see our house churches as the places and spaces that God called us to introduce people to Jesus and his, to trust in the work of the Spirit and to, and to unveil the truth about who he is? In my thought, house churches are the best places for people to belong before they believe, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to actually have an opportunity to be around Christians. Hugh Halter has this punchy uh, definition of evangelism. He says evangelism is changing the perspective of people, people's minds and hearts towards God and his people. So what would it look like if we actually began to recognize that our house churches are those places where we can invite folks in to kind of hang out at the family table, to begin to listen, to be cared for, to be loved, to be appreciated, to be prayed over, and to be able to ask questions just so we can begin to see God show up in amazing ways. Uh, I had breakfast with Jeanette this past week. And we were kind of talking about some of these issues within, some of these things and these opportunities within house church. And she said, so what if the idea of us being a community, a house church that reached out was what constantly pushed us? That we were constantly thinking through how do we reach out? How do we take risks? How do we introduce people to Jesus? And so as I think about all of this this whole conversation of what I sense God doing within the scripture, how I sense God kind of messing with my own heart, I want to bring us back to the painting or to the glass, broken glass piece. And I want to just leave us with a few minutes just to reflect, just to think through the ways in which God may calling us, be calling us as a community, us as house churches, to see the world through a really different lens, to see the world through the brokenness, to long for people to join into this broken, beautiful mosaic of what he has called the church, to tear down the ideas and the things that we have deemed as unclean and to recognize them as a place where God is at work. So I just want to leave us with a few moments and even just some time. Um, one of the things that we really feel like we want to do this summer is just create space for some conversation. Um, I don't know if it's question and answers because I don't have a lot of answers, but maybe just questions. So we're going to just leave a few minutes. If you have a question or a thought on what it means to how maybe you're interacting with the story or this teaching or this, this picture, how this might be convicting you, maybe the Lord put a risk on your mind that you really want to take, but we're just going to leave a few minutes just to kind of converse and talk, ask questions. I can give you a microphone if you have a question, too. Feels weird. Um, I'm going to sit. Um, <laughs> I've had two um, kind of burnings in my heart recently, and um, I feel like they're in spaces that need Jesus, and I just don't know how to get him there. Well, one is the, with the refugees right now. Like, I've... It's, it just feels like we need... Like, what you were saying about the pastor, the guy from Uganda is like this is an opportunity for the church and how do we do it? What do we do? Like, I feel like it's not near here. Like I, but I like, I'm like, let them out. They can stay in my house. I have extra room. Like, how do I get them here? Like, I just don't know <laughs> what to do. Um, and then the second is the LGBTQ community. I have, I've been 
I watched Queer Eye on Netflix, but, um, and this, they're, they're stories of these five guys and how they've been pushed away from Jesus, but if we just see them as a man or woman or whoever that God made, he made, that wasn't a mistake. And I just don't know how to get that message to them either because they've been so pushed away. So I don't know. It's just, <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And that's everything. <laughs> so the answer is no. Uh, yeah, thank you. So first of all, thank you so much for just that, th those honest comments. Yeah, I mean, does anyone else struggle with that? Like, what do I do with this? Or how, anyone else, like just a show of hands? A lot of us do. And like, I think that's so important for us just to recognize, like, this is hard stuff. But God is the God who can do the impossible things that we can never imagine. And, like, I, I don't, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I've really appreciated about, about my, my wife is she, she works as a, as a field hockey and lacrosse official. She has a lot of friends who are part of the LGBTQ community. And I just love the way she loves them. Like, it's changing the perspective of God and his people. And that's, and, and, and realizing, like, I will trust God to do God's work. I will do my work of being a representative of Jesus to folks. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this radical vision of grace. Lord, thank you that, that we all stand here today. Uh, we sit here today. We're, we're part of the conversation today, uh, not because we're Jewish, but because your love is so radical and wild and crazy that you had a bigger definition of family and that you called us while we were still sinners and you moved grace before our lives to begin to woo us and call us. And Lord, we recognize that this is a dangerous conversation for a church to have about what does it mean to embody Jesus to our neighbors and coworkers and the people around us? What does it mean to trust the Spirit in a way in which you have full reign and access in our lives? So Lord, we, we don't have the answers, but we know that you do. And so we give you permission to mess with our souls, to wake us up. We ask for visions and dreams uh, to see the things that you're up to and the courage to step into those. And so, Lord, as we respond in worship through song, may you continue to stir our love for you, and may that love set our hearts ablaze to begin to share the good news that you are in love with people and that you call them to this beautiful new life, this resurrected life where sin and shame and guilt are shattered, where religion is ended, and where we have a chance to be part of a kingdom work that is so much bigger than ourselves. In your name we pray, amen.